Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live. What does it mean to be human? Bioethics and public policy. We are thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience as many of us are working from home using home internet. I now invite Dr. Ryan Anderson, Heritage's William E. Simon, Senior Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy to come on screen. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the program. Great, thank you, Ellie, and thank you to everyone at Heritage um, who's provided the assistance to really make this event uh, possible. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to have so many of you uh, with us for what promises really to be uh, a pretty exciting uh, and timely conversation. Uh, we have a great panel lined up for you, so let me just jump right into their introductions and then say a little bit about what we will be discussing. Uh, we have Carter Sneed, a professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also a concurrent professor of political science. He's the director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, and he's the author of this brand new book just out from Harvard University Press, What It Means to Be Human. We'll also hear from uh, Yuval Levin. Uh, Yuval is the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's also the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy, He's also the editor-in-chief of National Affairs, which to my mind is the best uh, kind of quarterly public policy and intellectual thought journal uh, being published in America today. And then we'll also hear from Robbie George. Uh, Robbie is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University, where he directs the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Um, he's a frequent co-author of mine. Um, we've just wrote something two weeks ago about Pope Francis and civil unions. We've co-authored a book together about marriage. And he sits on the board of trustees of uh, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, so this afternoon, we're going to be talking about bioethics, about public policy, about the role of anthropology in all these debates. Uh, so please join me in welcoming our panelists to turn on their cameras, and we'll get this thing started. Okay, everyone's there. Perfect. Technology is working. All right, so Carter, I want to start with you. Uh, you're a professor of law, uh, and yet you've just published a book with Harvard U University Press on anthropology. And I imagine by anthropology, you're not doing kind of the Margaret Mead thing. Uh, you're talking about philosophical anthropology. Explain to us like what this is, why this matters, and why, why a law professor is engaged in this task. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, for the question. And but before I answer, I'd like to thank you and the Heritage Foundation for sponsoring this wonderful event. I'm grateful for, for your support. And it's a special treat for me to appear with two folks that I know and care for and admire so much and who, people who are so important to uh, the intellectual uh, life of our nation, Robbie George and Yuval Levin, and you too as well, Ryan. Uh, it's just a, it's a great honor to, and, and pleasure to be with you today. Um, <clears throat> you're exactly right. I, I do think the word I use uh, in the book as the principal organizing concept is the, the concept of anthropology, not meant in its modern uh, sense of an academic discipline, but rather its original literal sense in the sense of what it means to be a human being. It's an account of what it means to be and flourish uh, as a human being. And at Notre Dame Law School, we teach our students 
And I know others that Robbie does as well. But the richest point of entry into any legal proposition is to, to focus on the purposes and norms and the normative uh, ends uh, of whatever legal subject happens to be under consideration. What does the law aim at? What are the goods it seeks to pursue? What are the harms it seeks to avoid? Uh, but in this book, I try to go a level even deeper still. And, and the, the principal methodological claim of the book is that because law, properly understood, aims to protect and promote the flourishing of persons, all law, no matter what it is, but this is especially true of public bioethics, has a prior assumption about what a, a human being is and what constitutes his or her flourishing. And what I propose to do in the book is to dig into the vital conflicts of American public bioethics, the law and policy of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, and try to uncover what are the law's assumptions about who we are uh, and what constitutes our flourishing. Because if we don't know what that is, if we can't name it and analyze it, we are in no position to know whether or not the law is accomplishing its purposes, whether it's just and humane, or whether it is rooted on an incomplete or false account of who we are and what we owe to each other. Perfect, thank you. And, and so in the book, you, you, you present two kind of dominant competing anthropologies. C can you give viewers you know, the, the thumbnail sketch of what those two are? Yeah, absolutely. What, I, I conduct this, what I call an inductive analysis of these areas of the law by looking at the law as it currently stands and then asking the question, what vision of the human person is reflected in these legal principles and doctrines and policies? And what I found was something that was quite troubling. I mean, for years, I've been working on public bioethics with Robbie and with Yuval and, and others. And one constant theme has been the failure of the law to protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us, those uh, at the beginning of life, both children born and unborn, the elderly, those suffering from various disabilities. The law frequently, as it's currently constructed, fails to not just protect those individuals, but even to see them. They're completely invisible. And the question is why? And what I found when I looked at these areas of the law was something quite troubling, that the account of the person that underwrites all of these laws and policies reflects what Charles Taylor and Robert Bella and Alistair McIntyre and others have referred to as expressive individualism. Robbie's talked about this as well. Yuval has talked about it. The idea that a human being is best understood uh, as a will, a disembodied, atomized will uh, who, is, who is a person in virtue of their capacity to make choices, to formulate future directed plans. Uh, the fundamental human reality is the individuated will. And we live in a kind of universe of individual wills who maybe come together to pursue mutual goals or maybe have to overcome one another in an adversarial circumstance of strife to achieve what they want. Uh, but people are not defined by their relationships. They're not defined by their embeddedness in communities or families or civilizations. They're simply atomized wills that are seeking to pursue their own goods. And the highest flourishing within this framework is to interrogate the interior of the self to find your own original, subjective, authentic truths, which can and frequently are transgressive of the norms of the society or civilization in which you emerge. But that doesn't matter. The only thing that you're bound by is to pursue your freedom, to pursue freely the destiny of your own invention. And everything else, our, our relationships, our, our nature, our bodies, are instrumental to this goal. Uh, and, uh, and because of that, because it's an anthropology that fails to take seriously our embodiment and the fact that we are bodies, we're ensouled bodies, we're animated bodies, we're a dynamic union of body and soul, not mere wills that have instrumental bodies, it misses entirely those members of the human community uh, that, that can't flourish in those ways, either because they're too young or small or dependent, or maybe they're disabled. 
those individuals are invisible, not just the individual, and, and because they're invisible, our obligations to them are likewise invisible. And so that's a very poor foundation to construct laws and policies that relate to how to care for the sick and, and injured and engage the, the boundary question of who counts as a member of the human community. Now, you asked a separate question. You asked what's the com contending idea, uh, per perception, what's the contending anthropology, and I'll be very brief here. It's an anthropology that takes seriously our embodiment. It's an anthropology that takes seriously what it means to be a human being as a being that lives as a finite body in time. And there are certain inexorable realities that, that we can see if we reflect just for a moment that because we are bodies and we encounter ourselves and others as living and dying bodies, we are vulnerable, we're mutual dependent, mutually dependent, and we're subject to natural limits. And as Alistair McIntyre said, for embodied beings to flourish and to become, to A, to survive, but B, to become the independent practical reasoners that is the purpose, of, is what we should become, we have to have these networks of what he calls uncalculated giving and graceful receiving and practice certain kinds of virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, which are best summarized as the virtues of authentic friendship, being able to make the good of another your own, uh, and uh, and even to put it most succinctly, the, the argument, the substantive argument of the book is by virtue of our embodiment, we're made for love and friendship and for the law to be just, wise and humane. It needs to be grounded in that truth and to reflect it in its its policies and doctrines. Yeah, th that is pitch perfect. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, Yuval, I, I want to, um, before we move to the application of the anthropology, I want to stay on the topic of the anthropology just for a minute because you wrote a, um, a beautiful review of Carter's book um, earlier this week, I believe it was published in the Wall Street Journal. And I think we have a link to it that we can uh, post in the chat uh, uh, box here for our viewers. Uh, but at the very end, you mentioned that this isn't just an important work of bioethics, this is an important work of moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and since you a whole bunch of kind of um, public policy studies at AEI, can you help us connect the dots to see how anthropology matters, not just in the bioethical context, but on every aspect of law, every aspect of, of public policy, how does this play out uh, in kind of the day-to-day -day of policymaking? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you uh, to you and to Heritage for uh, organizing this conversation and letting us all talk about this important subject and really this extraordinarily important and wonderfully uh, written book. The, the, these kinds of deep questions of anthropology actually underlie all of our most significant moral and cultural debates. Um, arguments about what, what is good and what is right for human beings ultimately would have to be arguments about what the human person really is. They're grounded in assumptions about who and what we are. And there's a very powerful inclination in our culture, as Carter suggests, to view the human person as a kind of isolated, atomized decision maker. Um, who would be best served by independence, by just being left alone to make his or her own choices. And beneath that view is a, a notion that the human person basically requires nothing but the freedom to choose in order to flourish, but everywhere is somehow oppressed by various kinds of institutions and forces and traditions that constrain that freedom to choose. A lot of our cultural conflicts uh, are driven by a sense that that's what society is, and therefore it needs to be pushed back and pushed off our, our uh, out of our way. And that view of society would treat all human connection, all affiliation and obligation, as a kind of illegitimate constraint, and in 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 a misguided effort to liberate us, would break the bonds that we have with others, bonds of family and community and friendship, religion, society, culture, country. Um, and, but if we begin from a different anthropology, 
a deeper anthropology that assumes that the human person is is fallen and imperfect, is in need of formation, but also is capable of moral improvement, then we would see that what we require are formative social institutions in order to be free and to flourish. And that view would treat our connection to other people as essential to our identity, to our flourishing, and to our freedom. It would see the social as an essential element of our humanity. The difference between these two views just could not be more significant. They're at the heart of a lot of our most contentious, most important cultural and, and moral debates. They're the reason why the hottest culture war controversies are about family and community and religion and education and nation. Those institutions are all challenges to the notion that choice is everything. And in their own way, they each say that actually unchosen obligations run deeper than the choices that we make. And I think that's also why bioethics runs so deep and raises such intense controversy, because it often touches on those areas of life where it's impossible to pretend that the human person is just a choosing will. It treats people in situations where they're not able to make choices, and yet we, we need to see their value, we need to see their worth as human beings. And the kind of anthropology that Carter criticizes so well in this book that is so dominant in contemporary bioethics, even when it sets out to protect such people, seems to be incapable of seeing their worth, of seeing why these are human persons. If you begin from a different view of the human person, again, a deeper, I think, truer view of the human person, then it's no mystery why we owe protection to an unborn child or to a, a dementia patient. It's obvious that this is another human being to whom we owe, and, and in the same way that we owe one another, recognition uh, and accommodation, friendship, love, community. Um, that that's a mystery is just proof that the underlying anthropology is, is a failure. If, if we have to struggle to explain to ourselves why another human being is worth living, then we've begun from the wrong place. And we need to ask ourselves where instead we should begin to think about these deepest questions. And Robbie, that's a nice uh, segue to, to a question I want to ask you. My first job out of college uh, for viewers was as Robbie George's research <laughs> assistant. And uh, one of the two books that I uh, helped you on, Robbie, was your Body Self Dualism book, um, uh, co-authored with Patrick Lee at Franciscan University. And I think this ties really nicely. And Carter has really emphasized the expressive individualism um, that's at the heart of this competing anthropology. You've all just said, if you have the right anthropology, it's just obvious why you care about the unborn child and the, um, uh, uh, the patient with dementia. Um, it seems to me that body self-dualism is uh, seriously at play here. Car Carter mentioned this in some of his uh, opening comments. Could you explain kind of how this um, uh, anthropology intersects with some of your work on dualism, some of your work on natural law theory, um, how do you put this together, what Carter is doing, what you've all just discussed in your own kind of scholarship? Well, I'll be happy to talk about that, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, and thank you and thank Heritage uh, for the opportunity, opportunity to join in this uh, panel. Uh, I want to begin by congratulating uh, Carter on a truly outstanding book. Uh, all is absolutely right, both in what he said here and in his excellent review in the Wall Street Journal. It's a brilliant book. It's an important book. And I think it's going to be a very valuable book for people who are struggling to ensure that our laws may finally be uh, made compatible with the principle of the profound and inherent and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. Without the kind of work that Carter is doing in this book, and the kind of work that Ryan, you have done and Yuval has done, 
we have no hope of achieving that uh, noblest of, of noble goals. Uh, also, before addressing your question directly, I can't help myself. I'm looking at a screen here, and you recalled, Ryan, uh, your first job, which was uh, working with me. Uh, I look at this screen, and I see Carter Sneed and Ryan Anderson and Yuval uh, Levin, and I'm the old guy here. And I think back to when I knew all of you when you were just beginning in your careers. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit sentimental and, and nostalgic today because, um, as you know, we have lost one of the great, one of the world's greatest public intellectuals, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, also my dear friend and a friend of, of yours. Uh, we lost him too young at 72. He was only 72. What a great teacher. What an exemplary public intellectual. And I'm grieving. But then I look at my screen and I see these three young people that I Remember when they were even younger, when they were first starting out. And I look at what you have become and the contributions you are making as now the leading public intellectuals of your generation. And I think, well, okay, we've lost Jonathan, but the reinforcements are here. They're on their way. I am so proud of you guys, of what you represent, of what you get at the comment. And I'm feeling better about the future. I know this is a time when a lot of people are feeling anxious about the future. But you and uh, the, the, the others who uh, I could easily mention, and you, you know who I'm talking about, who are in your cohort, uh, make me re feel really good about the future. Uh, Ryan uh, raised, as, as Carter had, uh, the question of, of body self-dualism. Um, Carter's book uh, takes the view uh, that I have myself articulated, both in the book that Ryan helped me with, uh, with Pat Lee, Body Self-Dualism and Contemporary a person body dualism and a contemporary, oh, sorry, self body dualism. I can't even remember the titles of my own books now. <laughs> self body dualism and contemporary ethics and politics. Uh, that underlying many of uh, the errors uh, of contemporary thought about morality, especially public morality, and bioethics in particular, and law is a misguided anthropology, a view of the human person that separates body and self, that supposes that what human beings are, are non-bodily persons who inhabit or are somehow associated with and use as instruments non-personal bodies. According to this view, the true me or you is not the physical entity you see there in any way, that's just an instrument of the invisible true you lurking back there somewhere. The invisible true you that is a will, as Carter put it, or a conscious and desiring self, a center of consciousness and feeling, emotion, a soul that is not to be confused with the mere material shell or vehicle in which the soul somehow uh, resides. Now, this is an ancient view. Uh, it was a view held, for example, by Plato. Uh, it became the center of the anthropology of the family of views uh, in the early Christian period known as Gnosticism, what became a famous heresy called Gnosticism, the separation of self and body, the idea that we are ghosts and machines. And since that early period, it has been revived time and again in the Middle Ages, in early modernity, 
and again today. Sometimes it's defended philosophically, although it's very difficult to defend philosophically. It's philosophically quite untenable. I can go into that, the reasons for that if you like. But more often, it's simply assumed to be the case without being defended. The informal understanding that so many people today have of themselves and of other human beings is as essentially wills, non-bodily persons who inhabit and use as instruments non-personal bodies. That means our body is a purely instrumental reality to be manipulated, used in whatever way will satisfy the interests of the will, which is the true self. Uh, this helps to explain why so many people have embraced the idea that abortion or even infanticide is morally legitimate. After all, if the person is not the body, but is rather the conscious and desiring self or will, then there are some human beings, biologically human, human beings who are not yet persons because they're not exercising powers of will. They're not, uh, they can't be described as being conscious and aware, at least in the sense in which uh, at a later stage of development, we become conscious and aware. So the unborn and perhaps the newborn are, are human beings. I mean, some people, of course, deny that unborn children are human beings. That's simply idiotic. Uh, that's just contrary to the elementary facts of science. That's, that's probably the most prevalent form of science denial we have in our culture. Uh, serious people, for example, Peter Singer, my colleague at Princeton, who defends both abortion and infanticide, uh, is the first to tell you, of course, an unborn child and a newborn child are human beings. But Peter denies, as many people deny now, that they are persons because just to be a human being doesn't mean you're a person. That's just a physical thing. And the human body is just an instrument. It's not the actual person, which is the consciousness. So we can have pre-personal human beings. By the same token, if we embrace this conception of the person, this anthropology, this self-body dualism, just as there can be pre-personal human beings, there can be post-personal human beings. Human beings suffering from Alzheimer's disease or other severe dementias, who of course are human beings, that's a biological fact, nobody can deny that. But according to this view, they don't have dignity, they don't have worth, they don't have rights, they don't have a right to life because they are no longer persons, they are post-personal human beings. And what really counts and matters is being a person, not merely being a human being. And again, by the same token, just as there can be pre-personal human beings on this view and post-personal human beings on this view, there can be and are on this view some human beings who are not now, never were, and never will be persons, the congenitally, severely, cognitively disabled, for example. These are simply regarded as human non-persons in the way that unborn children, or newborn children, or those suffering from dementias are human non-persons. Uh, when we reject as we should the concept of self-body dualism, when we understand the human person as a dynamic unity of body and mind or body and soul, uh, when we see the body not as merely instrumental in the service of the mind or will, but as part of the very personal reality of the human being, then we recognize there can be no pre-personal, no post-personal human beings. There can be no human non-persons. Then we are in a position, Ryan, to affirm the very concept of human rights. That is, rights we have not in virtue of some achievement, 
stage of development, uh, getting past a condition of dependency or being out of a condition of dependency or whatever. Not that we have on the basis of intelligence or strength or ability to act autonomously or uh, charm or education level or what have you, but rights that we have simply in virtue of our humanity. The great irony is today, so many people who regard themselves as champions of human rights deny in practice the very concept of human rights. They're embracing implicitly, usually without even thinking about it or able to give you any kind of coherent account of it. They're embracing self-body dualism. They're viewing the body as purely instrumental, has robbed them of the ability to actually see the truth that there are rights we have simply in virtue of our humanity. Do you have a human person there? Well, yes, if you have a living member of the species Homo sapiens. That elderly grandpa, great-grandpa with Alzheimer's, yes, he is a person. His Alzheimer's, his loss of memory, uh, his, his inability to recognize you or his confusing you with another grandson or granddaughter, that doesn't mean he's not a person. He's a precious member of the human family, a human being and as such a person. Same at the other end of life. Same with a congenitally, severely, uh, cognitively disabled uh, person. So the fight for human dignity, the fight for human rights is really grounded in the affirmation that we human beings are embodied persons. Our bodies are not mere instruments. Our bodies are not mere vehicles in which we uh, reside or, or uh, accommodations of some sort. Our bodies are part of the personal reality of us. And so we have to defend human life at all stages and all conditions from the earliest emergence of life in the womb all the way to death. Great, thank, thank you, Robbie. Um, that strikes me as um, exactly right on the body of dualism and the moral kind of questions, the human rights questions. And then Carter, what I like about your book is you go, um, you, you say that, you make that argument, you also go, um, to my mind, somewhere um, new, somewhere kind of um, building on that by incorporating some of Alistair McIntyre's insights. Uh, you described it earlier, the um, uncalculated networks of giving and receiving, the radical hospitality. I'm wondering if, if you could um, say a little bit about how that applies to some of these questions about the beginning of life. Okay, so it's not yeah. just the kind of like narrow decision of, you know, there, there's um, a, a, a pregnant woman with an unborn child and what's the right moral thing to do for her, but how do we put this in the larger ecosystem, the, the human ecology of what do all of us owe to that child and to that mother? And, and how do we think about those uncalculated networks of giving and receiving? Um, riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as he always does, Robbie sets out beautifully the boundary question of who counts and who doesn't count. Through, viewed through the lens of a of an imperfect, a, a fatally imperfect anthropology of uh, of expressive individualism, bodies, uh, you know, uh, the sort of single-minded notion, the Gnostic approach that he describes. Um, but the problem, uh, as operationalized in public policy and law, is we see from the very beginning when we read the Roe v. Wade, when we read Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and you look at all the different uh, legal discourse as well as the philosophical discourse on which it depends. It's still the case that the strongest articulation of the abortion rights view is Judith Jarvis Thompson, Michael Tooley, these other 
folks who, who do exactly describe the boundary question of who counts in precisely the way that Robbie characterizes Peter Singer and others have as having done, either ruling out the possibility that an unborn child is a human being because he or she can't formulate the, the desires for human rights or the, or the future directed plans, or simply focusing single-mindedly on the woman who is uniquely burdened in her body by an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. So you read, first of all, how the loss describes and frames the question in which the issue of abortion arises. It describes the question in a way that atomizes all the different players. The, the mother is not a mother. The child is not a child. They're atomized strangers, right? They're fighting over scarce uh, resources. Uh, and there's no relationship of motherhood uh, or parenthood. There's no discussion of how they both are already embedded in an important network and web of, 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 of connection to one another by virtue of their biological kinship. Instead, it's just a conflict. It's a conflict of, of desire, well, a conflict of interests. One be involving a person who the law, according to Blackman and others, they wave their hand, they say, oh, this is not a constitutional person in terms of the, the meaning of the 14th Amendment. It's a very cursory and, and unpersuasive account that they give. But the deeper problem is to say, the mother, the, the, the right to abortion itself emerges in Roe and Casey as a reaction to the, the human context viewed through the lens of expressive individualism. There is a woman, there's a person with a will and a desire and a future that is, that is encumbered by this, by this pregnancy. Uh, the baby is conceived as a subpersonal human being, not just as a constitutional matter, but as a legal matter. Blackman and, and our jurisprudence says that the state is not permitted to adopt a single vision of the personhood, the legal person, forget the constitutional personhood, but the legal personhood of the unborn child, and focuses single-mindedly on the mother's freedom to unburden herself from this relationship, this unchosen relationship ignoring the concept of motherhood, leaving everyone as an atomized individual and leaving them to their own devices and then ultimately gives the woman the only tool that makes sense in a world of strife of atomized wills and that's the right to kill. The right to kill the, the thing that is in some way encumbering your open future. That's how Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about it in her dissent in Gonzalez versus Carhartt. The freedom of abortion is the freedom of a woman to unburden herself from bodily impositions, the unjust natural imposition of pregnancy so she can pursue her will uh, and her desire and participate freely and equally in the social and economic life of the nation. And from the very framing, this gets it wrong, right? It ignores the concept of parenthood. And by virtue of that framing, obviously the unborn child is left behind, but so is the mother. The mother is not seen through the lens of mother. She's not seen through the lens of a, of a person whose very status summons our aid, summons the aid of, her, of, of the man who, who also uh, sired that child of the family to which she belongs, of the community, of the state, to come to the aid of a mother who needs to care for her child in the right way. That's it's a category mistake that the law makes in that context of abortion and avoids uh, avoids even entering into the question of how do we care rightly for a person in that situation. And that's where McIntyre's vision comes in as dependent rational animals, as people who. Uh, have bodies, live as bodies that are corruptible, that make us vulnerable and dependent upon one another because of our subjection to natural limits. We have to have networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving where people will make the good of others their own good. And obviously, the, the, the sort of pristine example of a person making the good of another their own, not because they have a contract, not because it's a transaction that will benefit them in some way, is the relationship of parent and child. 
That's the that's the very strongest and most beautiful example of a network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. And the law, by ignoring that and treating these as strangers who are fighting over scarce resources, like Judith Jarvis Thompson's, you know, violinist account, which we can go into if you want to, gets wrong from the very beginning what it is that we're even talking about. I wonder if I can press on, on, on just that point, the way in which Carter just built on Robbie's argument. Because I, I think it's enormously important to see that the deepest challenge that as a society we confront with this kind of anthropology that's so dominant in our culture is that it seeks to break apart human relationships. It thinks the person is only free when isolated and is best understood as a human being when isolated. And so would, would seek to see our relationships to others as relationships of dependence and therefore as burdens. And the idea that independence that ending dependence is the goal, is to begin with a grave mistake. And it's a mistake precisely about the nature of the human person. We are all dependent, all of us. If there is a way in which we are fundamentally equal in practice, is it is precisely in, the, in that all of us are dependent. And the question is, what does that dependence demand of us, demand of others? How does it shape a set of human institutions and relationships by beginning from our fundamental equality, as our society tells itself that it does, but rarely thinks through the implications of what it would mean to actually start from the actual premise that we are all created equal. What that really means is that we are all equally vulnerable and we are all equally dependent. We require one another. A society of equals is a society that looks out for each other. It's not a society that wants to break connections of dependence and leave people on their own and then say they're free. No one is free on their own. All that you are on your own is lost and in trouble. And ultimately, the, the real challenge that this anthropology poses to a society is that it would break apart human affiliation and connection and break apart relations of responsibility. To say that someone is a mother or a son or a neighbor or a friend is to define a relation, to describe a connection to other people. And there is no way to talk about human beings other than that. That's why the effort to talk about it requires the invention of this new language, which is so cold and barren, because it ultimately just is an inhuman language, and it points to an inhuman way of thinking about the nature of society and the nature of the human person. We only have 10 minutes left. Um, so let me just say to, to, the, um, to the viewers, if you go to the, your um, kind of uh, control box there in the uh, questions section, you can ask some questions of us. I've been reading through them. Um, I'm trying to work them into our discussion. So feel free in these remaining 10 minutes, if you haven't already, type in your question there. And, and one of the questions that's come up kind of repeatedly is, uh, what should we be expecting in the next presidential administration? Um, we already have seen that Vice President Biden has announced that Dr. Zeke Emanuel uh, will be one of his bioethic advisors, especially on COVID questions. Um, for people who aren't familiar, uh, Dr. Zeke Emanuel wrote a kind of infamous uh, Atlantic Monthly essay about why he hopes to die at age 75, because after 75, life isn't quite as worth living as it was beforehand. Um, so how should we think about the end of life? How should we think about COVID and what we saw back in March and April, those horrendous scenes in nursing homes, the th statistics that show, I forget what the stat is currently, but at one point, half of all COVID deaths had taken place inside of nursing homes. Um, you know, Pope Francis refers to this as a throwaway culture in which we, um, you know, we use and kind of discard uh, things and now people as if they're things. So, um, I mean, I don't know, this is kind of a, 
open to all three of you. Uh, what do we what what do you expect in the Biden administration? How should we think about COVID and the vaccine and COVID and some of the bioethic advisors and the elderly? Uh, maybe we can just go one, two, three, and you each say you know a little bit about this. And, and Carter, yeah. feel free to kick us off. Yeah, sure. First of all, I, I wonder if uh, if Dr. Emanuel has been advised that Joe Biden is 78 years old. Uh, that might actually be something. He might he might recalibrate the number uh, after which, uh, and if there's a vaccine, if he would let uh, President Biden have it. Um, the 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 you know get. I'll pass to my my colleagues here, but I mean the question that I have for people who make those kinds of statements is is you know when we're talking about the, the the issue that's going to present itself is the allocation of the vaccine once god willing it arrives and uh if we're beginning from the premise that only certain kinds of human flourishing is worth promoting and, and preserving and someone who is is uh in a certain physical condition or a certain age is not entitled to that that i think gets the matter exactly wrong and i think hans Jonas mm. reminds us that utter vulnerability requires utter protection, not the other way around. The most vulnerable, it's been shameful what's happened in those nursing homes. Uh, and it's been shameful that those folks have been ab abandoned. And uh, and I hope that people, when they think and they remember, they remember them, their own vulnerability and, and, they, and they feel the gratitude that that should engender, that they'll realize that we have obligations to the weakest among us. And that's true, not just in the context of uh, abortion, but it's certainly in the context of vaccine distribution as well. Well, I would only say I, I, I think that the kind of argument that Zeke Emanuel made in that famous essay and he's made it elsewhere is, is to me evidence of the failure of the premises he begins with. If your argument leads you to the conclusion that older people in our society couldn't possibly have lives worth living, that their lives are an imposition on others, and that they're incapable of exercising their essential humanity beyond a, a, a certain age, uh, then maybe you should go back to the beginning and think through where you made a mistake. Um, because there, the, 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 the idea that the right way to think about those in our society who are more vulnerable, and by the way, those in our society who have made contributions to it over a lifetime, to whom we owe everything that we should be grateful for, um, the notion that they've reached a point where they no longer matter um, is a, a fundamental failure of whether it's moral philosophy or social responsibility or, or basic humanity. Um, and it's not hard to find where the mistake is made in that line of logic. It's made at the beginning. It's made at the, in the assumption of what it is that makes a human person worthwhile. And if you begin from a crude utilitarian assumption that what's worthwhile is your capacity to make choices, and you end up doing math about how many years a person still has left to make choices, then what you're doing is not moral philosophy. It's it's a silly game that should never be allowed to affect how actual human beings interact with one another. And so I certainly worry if that kind of logic is how we're going to think about how to prioritize our society's resources, um, how to think about the most vulnerable people in our society. And as Carter's book shows, there are various ways in which that comes to be applied practically and I certainly think we need to be on our guard and pushing back and fighting back against those kinds of applications in the coming years. Social liberalism is the dominant position, overwhelmingly dominant position uh, in the Democratic Party. It will be the dominant position in a Biden administration. Um, and the anthropological error, the fundamental anthropological mistake, the separation of, of, of self and body, the treatment of the body as a purely instrumental uh, reality, that underwrites socially liberal ideas about abortion, increasingly infanticide, 
and euthanasia also underwrite social liberal ideology on questions of marriage and the family, gender, including transgender ideology, and so forth. Uh, and so I expect that you will see an administration that quite aggressively uh, promotes the entire socially liberal uh, agenda. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where pushback comes from and whether any alliances can be formed. One interesting thing that uh, I've noticed just in uh, the past uh, year or so emerging, you saw it in the, in the um, controversy over uh, the uh, tweets of the author of the Harry uh, Potter stories, uh, is some pushback uh, from feminists against transgender uh, ideology. Uh, why? Uh, well, it's because from the point of view of at least some feminists, women are erased when we treat the body as purely instrumental, such that we think the real person is the non-mental, so, I'm sorry, is the mental substance, uh, which may consider itself to be male or female, irrespective of whether the body happens to line up uh, with the, uh, the so-called gender uh, identity. It, it could be that some feminists are rediscovering the importance of understanding the body as really me and not just some instrument of me. And, and they may find themselves in alliances with socially conservative people uh, like ourselves who, uh, who have long rejected that kind of person-body dualism. I, I wanna conclude on a point that, that Carter made, which I just wanna reinforce because I think it's so important when he's talking about the child-parent, parent-child relationship as the, almost the archetype, perhaps is the archetype of, uh, of a non-instrumental relationship. It's important to understand that if you conceive your relationship with your own body as purely instrumental, you conceive your own body just as an instrument of your will, it will simply be impossible for you to treat relationships with other people as non-instrumental relationships. And then we have trouble explaining even why the relationship of parent and child should be a non-instrumental uh, relationship. And too often these days, we've seen the relationship of parent and child move into an instrumental relationship. So often children are regarded by their parents as lifestyle accessories in a certain sense, or, or, or parents put pressure on their children because they're living vicariously through their children and their children's uh, uh, achievements and status is central to their own sense of their own uh, self-worth. You're, you're dying to get that Stanford or Harvard sticker to put on the back of your car, and that's what gives your kid value in, uh, in your life, or your kid uh, ending up at Goldman Sachs or, or whatever. So I think we have to really fight hard for the non-instrumental conception of the body, not only because it's right and true and enables us to understand ourselves correctly and act in an ethically upright way, and not simply because we need that if we're to participate as democratic citizens in making sound public policy, but also because we need it just to have decent and honorable non-instrumental relations with others, whether it's parents caring for their children or the other version of that same archetype, Carter, is children caring for their elderly parents. Uh, something that in my generation, especially as people live to be uh, older, uh, is, is something very much in the forefront of our, of, of our minds. And I, I watch with enormous admiration uh, members of my own family and my friends who are caring for uh, elderly uh, parents where they're, they, have, they, they get nothing out of that deal, believe me. Uh, 
this this is truly a labor of love and it really is another example of that uh, non-instrumental relationship which is so critical to our humanity i want to squeeze one last question in We're, we technically have one minute left but um let's do it this way you each will have one minute to kind of answer this one of the questions from one of the viewers was how long can a nation exist when we can't even agree on who a person is right and obviously we fought a civil war uh, previously uh, in our own nation's history when we couldn't agree on who a person is. Um, and so let me ask you this, um, and, and then the advice was like, you know, how do we move forward? And let me um, pitch the question to you guys here on, on two levels, both politically and personally. Uh, politically, you know, what do we do in the public square? What do we do since we're likely to be in opposition uh, during a Biden administration um, when we're so divided on this question? But then personally, how do we have these conversations, right? You're all teachers, um, how do you model for your students how to have these conversations? How can our viewers have these conversations, you know, with their family members, with their friends, when they might not see eye to eye? Um, so we can go in that same order again. Carter, you ball, and then Robbie. Yeah, sure. Just very quickly, I, I think there's a temptation to try to craft grand solutions to solve huge problems. Like, how do we how do we solve this problem at the at the you know the the national level or the international level? I think we have to resist that. I think we have to, I mean, we obviously need to continue working on those issues, but the fundamental, the one thing that we can control and that we need to do is in our own lives and our own relationships is to model these, is to model the virtues that are necessary for the flourishing of embodied beings. And that includes things like just generosity, uh, hospitality, misericordia, accompanying others in their suffering, as well as the, 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 the virtues of graceful receiving, gratitude, humility, openness to the unbidden. Because truthfully, you can have wonderful books, you can have great lectures, you can have great political campaigns, but the thing that changes hearts and minds, especially people who are set against you, people who are on social media all the time and think that their opponents are the devil, you know, uh, extending the un unconditional love and affection, especially for those who disagree in friendship, that prophetic witness of in our own lives, reaching out and caring for other people and loving them first, and then trying to persuade them second, is I think the single greatest thing that we can do. And I think friendship at the end of the day is gonna be the real mechanism by which hearts and minds are changed. And you think about folks like Robbie and Cornell West and their friendship and how that, that's a, a kind of a disorienting countercultural thing to observe. And that, that's, that when, you, when, when something takes someone aback and it doesn't fit into their boxes, their polarized tribal boxes, that's when their heart I think can be prepared to be persuaded. Well, that's hard to follow. I very much agree with that. And I think Carter's book really embodies exactly that spirit. Uh, it is important to do what Carter does, to make public arguments, to stand up for the truth. It's also at least as important to do what he suggests here, which is to be a good parent and child, to be a good friend and neighbor, to be a loving person, to model by example what it is to treat other people as having worth and value. Ultimately, that kind of example can be enormously persuasive. And people, when they listen to different people making arguments, they ask themselves, who do I want to be more like? Uh, who, who seems to be doing this right? And I think you, you, you want to embody the answer to that as much as you want to articulate the answer to that. And both are enormously important in helping the rising generation see its way forward. Well, Carter and uh, Yuval have said the most important thing. Uh, so it falls to me to say the second most <laughs> important thing. Um, and this is directed at our political class, at those who would lead us, at those who would be statesmen. And we, we, we have people who have the makings of statesmen, so I hope that they are listening up to this conversation. It's important for a polity 
in circumstances like ours in particular, uh, to have leadership from people who are able and willing to articulate and defend first principles, who are able to understand that our problems are not simply problems of uh, fixing equipment, but do require the fresh, articulate, defensive first principles and an understanding of how first principles apply to our problems. I don't expect uh, a politician to stand up and give a discourse on self-body dualism, but I do expect and hope and pray for uh, a politician or some politicians, especially some of our younger uh, Republican politicians, who will be able to stand up and articulate a defense of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family and to show how that applies to the concrete issues of the sanctity of human life, of sex and um, marriage, of uh, uh, religious liberty and the rights of, uh, of conscience. So I'm hoping that, uh, just to mention a few people like Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Ben Sass. Uh, we just had, as I understand it, 15 new Republican female um, members of Congress, pro-life female members of Congress elected, or they're members of, of Congress. Uh, several of them uh, replacing uh, Democrats uh, who are not on this side of the issue. Uh, many of them young, if I understand it correctly. I hope that some of them will emerge. We needed a Lincoln when we got a Lincoln and we were fortunate enough to get him. Now, I, I don't know if we'll be fortunate enough to get another Lincoln, but we need our political class and our political leaders and those who would be statesmen to step up to the plate. Great. Thank you, Robbie. That's the, um, that's the second most important thing. Car what Carter and, and uh, you've all uh, articulated about friendship, about modeling the virtue of unconditional love, that's the most important thing. And that's the most important thing that the three of you uh, have done so well uh, for me and in my life. So I get the last word here as we uh, wrap this up. I just want to thank the three of you. Um, for viewers who don't know, you see kind of, you know, elite uh, uh, professors and think tank directors, and you assume that they are um, very jealous of their time, very greedy with their time, kind of arrogant, whatever. And that couldn't be further from the truth with these three individuals. Um, they have been more than justly generous of their time, their mentorship, their advice for me. Um, these are three people who I've benefited from throughout my entire adult life, both personally, professionally, intellectually. And so I commend to you, the uh, viewers, get Carter's book, read Carter's book, um, think about it. Yuval also earlier this year published a great book, A Time to Build. Um, many of the remarks that Yuval shared with us today, um, I see reflected in that book that he published earlier this year. Robbie seems to come out with a book every couple of years, so I'm not gonna list all of them. The one that I mentioned uh, today was Body Self-Dualism and Contemporary Ethics and Politics. I commend all those to you. Uh, follow them on social media, get to know them. They're very uh, justly generous and hospitable. Uh, people. Uh, with that said, thank you to our audience for joining us. Uh, if you want to stay in touch, our contact information is on the screen. Feel free to reach out. And then once this event ends, uh, if you registered for the event, you'll be getting an email. Uh, it's just a short survey so we can improve these events. We want to know what you liked, what you didn't like, what topics you want to hear about in the future, which panelists. Uh, so please do take the time to fill out that survey. It'll help me. It'll help our events team uh, so we can keep uh, doing a better job. And with that, uh, we are finished. Thank you, Carter. Thank you, Yuval. Thank you, Robbie. And thank you, everyone, for joining us.